Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working Radio Show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. One of our deepest yearnings from our earliest years is the desire for approval, for praise, and for reward when we do right. This is not wrong, it's the way God made us. But in a fallen world, we often seek to fill that deep longing with approval, praise, and reward that can never fill it. To be more specific, we seek to fill our need for God's approval, praise, and reward with that of men. Not that it is wrong to seek the good opinion of others, but it is wrong, not to mention futile, to seek to replace God's good opinion with man's. Moreover, in this fallen world, man's approval and reward are fickle, fleeting, and often just plain off. Thus man's approval makes a very poor compass for life and proves to be very unfulfilling. God's approval and reward, on the other hand, are constant, lasting, and always true, which makes them a true compass for life as well as eternally fulfilling. You may wonder why I am saying all this in regards to a passage which Jesus opens with the words, Take heed that you do not practice your righteousness before men to be seen by them. The reason is because our deep-seated, God-given need for His approval, praise, and reward is what Jesus is really addressing in this passage. His follow-up to do not practice your righteousness to be seen by men is, Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, approval, praise, and reward from our Father in heaven is the whole point. Jesus' problem with the hypocrites, whom he condemns throughout the passage, was not that they were being rewarded, but that they weren't being rewarded enough. And they weren't being rewarded by the one whom Jesus wanted his disciples to be rewarded by, namely, the Father in heaven. Jesus had no problem with a faith that is lived out publicly. In fact, he insisted on it. But he also insisted that living out the faith actually be motivated by faith, not by a pandering, manipulative desire for the cheap, quick approval of others. The problem with the hypocrites, as Jesus makes clear, is not that they played to the audience, but that they forgot who the primary audience is, and that is God himself. He is the one who is always there, who sees in secret, and who will reward his children openly. I hope this sermon will help you remember who your most important audience is, to live out the faith accordingly, and to receive his very public, lasting, and fulfilling reward as a result. After all, this is what God made you for. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. We'll read together Matthew 6, 1 through 6, and then verses 16 to 18. This is the Word of God. Take heed, says Jesus, that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. 
And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In verse 16 through 18. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Let us pray. God and Father, we pray, bring your word to us today with power and with conviction by the Holy Spirit. Speak to us in our hearts. Speak to us in our minds. Help us to understand. Convict us in the ways in which we fall short of what Jesus is saying here. And give us the power and encouragement of your spirit to be transformed to be your children the way you would like us to be. That we would truly practice righteousness in the way you intend that we would have your pleasure and favor upon us, and that we would see your reward upon us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, we have seen that Jesus so far has been addressing particular sins common among God's people. And he has already gone to murder. He has talked about adultery. He has talked about falsehood. He's talked about vengeance. Really bad sins, but what Jesus has done with all of those is we have seen then that each time he has taken them to the heart, which is where God's law took them uh, to start with. And he has brought the people back to that reality. And now Jesus takes up the whole practice of righteousness in general. Jesus is not just talking here about how we give alms, that is, to give money or charity to the poor. He's not just talking about how we pray or how we fast. He's talking about how we practice the faith across the board. He's talking about how we practice covenant faithfulness, which is what righteousness means in the Bible. In fact, in some of the Greek manuscripts, in verse 1, it literally says... Um, take heed that you do not practice your righteousness before men to be seen by them. Take heed that you do not practice your righteousness. And then Jesus gives three specific examples that would have been well known in the first century, which would be giving charity to the poor, praying and fasting. Uh, so he's really addressing across the board how we live out the faith. And when Jesus says here, practice righteousness, he's not talking about earning our salvation. He's not talking about things we do to earn our salvation, what we would call works. He's talking about living out salvation. Covenant faithfulness is what righteousness means in the Bible. And covenant, again, that sounds like a formal word, but it really means a personal relationship that is guarded by an oath and a bond. It, and the best human example is marriage. That's a covenant. It's personal. It's a union. 
It's guarded together by high obligations of loyalty and fidelity to one another. And that also describes our relationship with God. And so practicing your righteousness means just how do you live out your relationship with God? How do you live out your salvation? Today, we would talk about your walk with God. How do you walk with God? How do you live that out? How do you live out your Christian faith? That's what Jesus means when he says, talks about practicing our righteousness. Now, Jesus tells us at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes, he gives us this warning. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, I tell you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, our typical evangelical way of understanding that is to say, is to think he's saying, unless you believe in salvation by faith, as opposed to salvation by works, then you can't see the kingdom of God. And we go, okay, well, we have faith in Jesus. We believe in faith and grace and not works. And then automatically our righteousness succeeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And we're done. Well, if that's what Jesus meant, then he didn't need the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Because he's not talking about grace versus works. Um, we tend to caricaturize uh, the Pharisees and the Pharisee movement and first century Israel as, as in a very broad brush. as just, well, they believed in salvation by works. No, they didn't. No one who has actually read what the rabbis and so forth said back then can maintain that. They believed that Israel was a people who was saved by God's grace. And so what Jesus is talking about here is that unless your relationship with God, unless your walk with him, unless your whole way of, of living that out exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why he goes on to preach for uh, three more chapters in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about what that looks like. He starts out by saying, first of all, we have to correct or deepen your understanding of murder. We have to deepen your understanding of adultery. We have to deepen your understanding of bearing false witness. We have to deepen your understanding of what it means to be a vengeful person. We have to deepen your understanding of these things. And now he takes up this whole idea of affirmatively practicing righteousness. And the three things that he picks out, alms or giving charity to the poor, praying and fasting, were kind of like spiritual vital signs in the first century. This was kind of their checklist. This is your blood pressure, you know, and stuff like that. This is your temperature, blood pressure, and so forth. These were the things that would show to people that the covenant community would look forward to seeing you to say, yes, you're somebody who's actively walking with God. You're somebody who's on fire for the Lord. You're somebody who's living for Christ. All of that, they looked for these three things. If you didn't have these three things, then you would tend to be looked upon with some suspicion, some concern that you really weren't walking with God in the way that you needed to be. And of course, it really wouldn't be enough if you helped out your neighbor who was having a hard time. Maybe you didn't have enough money to just give them money. Maybe you helped Maybe you helped wash their clothes. Maybe you helped them build a barn. Maybe you did things like that that really amount to 
giving charity to somebody who is in need. But no, that really wouldn't qualify because nobody saw you in the right context doing that. Maybe you pray every day. Maybe you pray diligently. But, you know, again, that wasn't seen in the right context and in the right way. So you really don't have the witnesses and the right testimony as to your spiritual health. And maybe you do fast. Maybe you go before the Lord, you show your sincerity before Him, you show your humility before Him, you, you show the earnestness with which you are pursuing uh, God to, to listen to your requests and to, to grant what you're asking for. You do that by fasting. But again, who saw you? Who saw you? Anybody see you? How much did you appear to be suffering as you were fasting? Well, again, you don't have the testimony. And so this is how these things came to be seen. Now, if you think about it, we don't look at the same things today in evangelicalism as proofs of our spirituality, of being on fire for the Lord, of living out the faith. We have other things, and I'm, I'm not going to give you a list but I do want you to think about it. I do want you to think about what would be the things today. Because in preaching about these things, Jesus is really offending. He's really offending the evangelical uh, leaders of his day. The conservative covenant community, those who believe in the resurrection, those folks. He's really offending them because the way they're going to take this is, Jesus, how can you preach against alms? How can you preach against helping the poor, charity to the poor? How can you preach against prayer? How can you preach against fasting? Well, of course, Jesus isn't really preaching against those things. He's preaching what is motivating those things, why they're being done and how they're being done. He's not preaching against them at all. And so if we want to understand um, today... Um, what Jesus would say to us, he would not talk about alms and fasting and prayer because those aren't our litmus tests. Those aren't our spiritual vital signs within the evangelical church today. We have other things that we want to see and we want to see in a certain setting. Jesus would be going as bringing up those things because he would be just as offensive uh, to evangelicals and to the evangelical leaders today. And so I would leave it to you. To ask yourself, I think it's a good exercise to ask yourself, okay, what would be the things that he would be naming? Again, what he's really talking about is how we live out the faith altogether. But what would be the things that he would be naming today? What are the things that are really expected? What are the things that Christians and churches brag about? Here's what we have. Here's what we do. This is how you know we're good. We're on fire. This is a happening place. This is a happening church. Come be part of us. What are the things that we brag about today? That's the things that Jesus would be naming. So, what he's getting at here is that the things that we do to demonstrate our faith must in fact be motivated by faith. And not something else. If it's not motivated by faith, then it's not a demonstration of faith. No matter what it is. Even if it's a good thing. And our, our faith... It's supposed to be faith in God, a desire to serve Him, a desire to please Him, a desire to serve those who bear His image, not a desire to serve ourselves by creating a certain effect among other people, even good people, people within the covenant community. 
So let's look then in a little bit more detail in exactly what Jesus is saying to us. And, and the first thing I'd like to do is to call attention to what he is not saying, what Jesus is not saying. First of all, Jesus is not saying that we should pursue an inner religion as opposed to an outer religion, an inner Christianity as opposed to an outer Christianity. Notice, he does not say, be careful not to practice your righteousness before men. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness before men to be seen by them and to receive glory from them. Verses 1, 2, and 5. Jesus assumes that a righteous person, Jesus assumes that a person walking with God through Christ will show that relationship through things that they do outwardly in their life. He assumes that they will. And so we cannot exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by pursuing an exclusively inner piety. Stated differently, we cannot achieve true piety through pietism. Pietism, that's the absolutization of piety. It's taking something we're supposed to have, true piety, and absolutizing it as though that's the faith and anything that's outside is not the faith. Jesus doesn't go there. He does not dichotomize inner religion and outer religion, inner relationship with God and what we do outwardly. The second thing that Jesus is not saying is that we should pursue a so-called pure or platonic, or you might even say a stoic religion that is free of all desire for approval or reward. And oftentimes, down through Christian history, this is the way that the pure faith has been described. That is, if we really love God, then we will do what we do apart from any desire from reward. It's almost like a platonic type of a love. We simply do it because it conforms with some abstract idea of rightness or of goodness. And we have no other motive. Uh, you know, it says in Hebrews 11:6, He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What must we believe? We must believe, first of all, that God is, and we must believe that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So throughout these, this passage, Jesus assumes that we will seek approval. Jesus assumes that we will seek praise. Jesus assumes that we will seek reward. He does not speak against that. In fact, the whole reason that Jesus gives us for not practicing our righteousness to be seen by men and to receive glory for them is that if we do so, then we will have no reward from our Father in heaven. That's what he says in verse 1. That's the whole reason. If you do it this way, then you're limited to whatever reward you get from the group that you're playing to. You don't get any reward for your Heavenly Father. So his problem with these people in one sense is not that they're seeking reward. It's just that they're not getting enough reward. 
Jesus is talking about how to be rewarded more. And he's not limiting it to inner reward. He's not saying, you're seeking outer reward. I want to tell you how to seek the inner reward of inner peace, of inner, uh, of, of inner religious experience and high mountaintop religious uh, spirituality in that experience. No, he's talking about outer reward. He keeps saying, your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. That means publicly. So he's going from lesser reward to bigger reward, and he's going to even more public reward. And we start to see here that a good father, and that's what Jesus keeps calling, God the Father keeps calling him, your father, your father, your father. Well, if you think about it, a good father loves his children, right? A good father wants to give approval to his children. He wants to give praise to his children. That's what we see God the Father doing when Jesus is baptized. What does he say? He's there and he says, this, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Father holds out rewards to Jesus, his beloved son. It says in Hebrews that Jesus despised the shame of the cross But the reason why he went to the cross was for the joy, or you might say the reward, that was set before him. What was the reward set before him? The the exaltation of his father to his right hand, the gift of the whole world, all the people, a people, his bride, who are going to be joined to him by the Holy Spirit, who are going to enter into his joy And the whole earth being transformed into his kingdom. That's all what's described as being the joy. And so a good father does all these things to children. A father who is completely stoic toward his children doesn't give them approval, doesn't give them praise, doesn't want to give them rewards, is simply not a good father. And it is not wrong for a child to seek these things from their father. In fact, something's dreadfully wrong if you have a child who doesn't seek their parents' approval, their parents' praise, and and their parents' gifts, their favor, their, their rewards. Something is very, very wrong if you do not find that. And so when you find that, when you find a father who wants to bless his children in this way, This is not a father who wants to put his children on a works basis and say, you have to earn. No, it's the opposite of that. This is what love does. Okay, If you have children who want to please their father, want to please their mother, want to have their approval, want to receive their praise, want to receive rewards from them, that's not earning. That's love. That's what love does. The Bible speaks of wages. The Bible also speaks of gifts. The Bible speaks of inheritance. And here the Bible speaks of reward. Now, in the pure sense, a wage is something that you really earn. You do something. You don't, you don't have to like the person. You don't have to have really a personal relationship with them. You have to have some kind of a business relationship with them. But you don't have to have any kind of a personal relationship or bond with them. But you do something for them which obligates them to pay you something. It obligates them to pay you a wage. Okay, that's the way it works. And God tells us that when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to um, our relationship with God and so forth, 
the only thing that we can really earn is death. Wages of sin is death. That you can earn. That you can obligate. That you can earn. Right? But Jesus goes out of his way and he tells this parable to, to, to um, show us that that's not how God the Father operates with his children. He gives the, the parable of the unprofitable servant. And he says, he says, look, if you have a servant who's out working in the fields and this servant comes in after a hard day working out in the fields, you're not going to say to your servant, here, sit down and eat and drink. You're going to say to your servant, first, wait on me, give me my food, give me my drink, and then you can eat. And so Jesus says, so when you have done all that God requires of you, okay, you know, he usually takes you to about five o'clock every day to do all that God requires of you, right? You get all, you've done all that God requires of you. Okay. He says, when you get to that point, say, I am an unprofitable servant. I have only done that which was my duty to do. Now, on first blush, this parable seems shocking. It seems very cold. It's a very, it seems to be a very cold, morbid view of God that, he would, that Jesus would picture him in this way. Well, shock value is exactly what Jesus is after in that parable. And what he's trying to do is to shock us out of our insistence of tending to see God as though he's some kind of an employer and, and that we have to do good things and we earn a certain wage and that's our fundamental relationship with him. Jesus, what Jesus is really saying, this is this parable, is that that is not how God works. In other words, it is impossible to obligate God to pay you some kind of a wage other than the wage of death that comes from sin. Because you can't go beyond what we just automatically owe to God by the fact that he created us, created us in his own image, gave us life, gave us all these blessings. So that's what he's done for us up front before we've done anything. Okay, and that being true, how are you going to go beyond that, what you owe to God because of that and somehow obligate him now to pay you? That's impossible. We owe God everything. We owe him everything. So we can't earn any kind of a wage of good things. When the Bible speaks to what God does for us and his blessing for us, it always speaks in terms of gift. It speaks in terms of inheritance and it speaks in terms of reward. And none of these are a wage, strictly speaking. Okay, they're all things that come from good favor. Now, if you have a son or a daughter who is growing up and hope to receive an inheritance from their parents, uh, many times there's going to be something that is expected of them. They're going to be expected to grow up in a certain way and to show certain qualities, right? And so picture a prince or a princess growing up in the royal household with a king or queen. Here the kingdom is waiting to be inherited. That's the expectation. That's what's held out before them. If the prince and princess grow up in such a way that they do not reflect the character of the king and the queen, and they show themselves to be entirely unsuitable to reign, they're not going to inherit. On the other hand, if they do grow up and show the character of the king and the queen, 
and they show they have that kind of love and grace and wisdom and maturity to reign, they're going to receive the kingdom. And that is an inheritance. It is a reward. But it is not something they earn. You don't earn an inheritance even though you have to fill out and live in a certain way to qualify for the inheritance. So this is where Jesus is going with this. He's talking about us seeking the approval of God, seeking the favor and seeking the reward of God. And so we can see right off the bat that what Jesus is getting at here is quite different from the way that this passage has been interpreted by many Christians down through the centuries and still today. If we seek to pursue an exclusively inner Christianity, or if we seek to have a relationship with God or to serve Him without any hope of reward, then we are not obeying Jesus. Got that? I want that really clear. If we're seeking to pursue an exclusively inner Christianity or we're seeking to walk with God or serve Him without any hope of reward, we are disobeying Jesus. We're not doing what He is saying. Well, then let's ask the affirmative question, how do we obey him then? How do we obey what he's saying here? So let's shift from what Jesus is not saying to what he is saying. Jesus assumes that we're going to pursue a, a, a faith and a walk with him in which our righteousness will be seen outwardly. And he assumes that we're going to do so with hope of blessing and reward from God. He focuses in here, though, on who is the audience Who is the audience we seek to perform before and what is the reward we hope to receive from that audience? Now, you may think it's strange that I use the word audience because that that gives the idea that we're play acting. Well, the reason why I picked the word audience is that hypocrites, which is a word that Jesus keeps using here. And he says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Three different times. Don't be like the hypocrites. Well, the reason why I use the word uh, audience is because the Greek word hypocrite comes from ancient Greek theater. It is a theater term. And the hypocrite in ancient Greek theater was an actor who responded to the chorus. Now, the chorus in ancient Greek theater, if you've written, uh, read any ancient uh, Greek plays or even a lot of ancient plays, for example, in the Song of Solomon. You have a chorus and the chorus doesn't mean that they're singing. It means it's a group of people who speaks and clues us into what is really going on in the plot and also provides commentary on the characters and how they are behaving. Sometimes the chorus is very wise and good and talks about truly what the what the 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 main character should be doing but sometimes the chorus can be like the ancient greek gods which is very fickle very capricious and very wrong so the hypocrite in a greek play is one of the characters who when the chorus speaks responds to the chorus okay that's what uh, a hypocrite is so the hypocrite is is one who is in the play of life so to speak who is playing to the chorus. All right? And that is what the Pharisees had become. The Pharisee movement had begun well. It began as a renewal movement 
with a desire for practical holiness, practical walk with God and living that out. So living out the faith through doing which is good, doing good things like charity and fasting and prayer. But by Jesus' day, what was supposed to be living out faith in God and desire to please God had morphed into posturing for the chorus, playing to the chorus of fellow Israelites. And Jesus here gives three examples that would have been well known to his listeners. First, the one who announces his alms or his charitable gifts by having a trumpet blown. Doesn't just, um, doesn't just maybe uh, give directly to somebody who is in need. Doesn't maybe help out somebody who is in need. Doesn't even slip into the temple to the alms box when nobody is watching and just very quietly putting the money in there and going their way. But they actually hire somebody to blow a trumpet. Blow a trumpet before them. Today, we'd, we'd need an electric guitar, I think, something like that, uh, to announce what is going on. So the purpose, ostensibly, is to summon the poor to come receive this great gift. But the real reason was to summon the chorus. The second example he gives is the one who makes long and flowery prayers in public. The purpose, ostensibly, is to petition God. But the real reason was to attract the notice and the admiration of the chorus. Now, let me note here that Jesus is not condemning public prayer like we have here during the worship service each week. The Bible is full of public prayers. It's full of prayers offered uh, by prophets publicly, offered by kings publicly, offered by priests publicly on, on the part of God's people. Many of the Psalms are intended to be public prayers. So that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus many times prayed publicly so that his disciples or others could hear him. But that's not the problem. The problem is, is that this is really intended to be a private prayer. It's a private prayer which somebody is offering in a public setting so that people can see what a godly spiritual person they are by this glimpse into their private spiritual life. The third example Jesus gives is the one who fasts with a gloomy and a suffering exterior. The supposed reason is to have a time of special devotion and prayer to God, but the real reason was to attract the attention, the sympathy, and the admiration of the chorus. So the problem you see with the hypocrite is that they have forgotten who the audience is. That's the problem with a the hypocrite. They have forgotten who the primary audience is, who is God himself. God himself is the primary audience. Now, that is not to say that other people and their opinions and their approval are irrelevant. Oftentimes, today, we will think of somebody who's really spiritual and really humble is somebody who doesn't care at all what other people think. Well, C.S. Lewis, I think it was in Mere Christianity, did a real good job of debunking that. He said, anybody who really doesn't care at all what other people think is a proud monster. That is a monster of a person. He said, no, we, it's right and proper to care what people think. It's right and proper to want to have people's approval. 
But the question is, whose presence are you most sensitive to? The chorus, that is your peer group. Now, your peer group may be your friends at school. It may be your friends at work. It may be your evangelical peers. Uh, like in my case, it may be other pastors. What are other pastors going to think of, of you in certain settings? That, that is what I mean by your peer group. So whose presence are you most sensitive to, your peer group or your Heavenly Father? Whose opinion do you value most, your peer group or God? Whose favor and reward do you most seek, the choir, the chorus, the peer group, or your fathers. And so you see, it's not a matter of mutual exclusivity. It's not an either-or proposition. Luke says that Jesus, as a lad, grew in favor with God and men. Luke 2.52 Jesus grew in favor with God and men. So it's not either-or. It's not mutually exclusive. Jesus had the favor of both God and men. It's a matter of priority. Notice, God and men, not the other way around. God and men. Jesus' favor with men flowed from his favor with God. His favor with men was part of how God rewarded him openly for the way that Jesus related to God and lived his life. That kind of favor from men is good. It is a blessing. It is desirable. And we should all want to have it. And you know what? We all do want to have it, don't we? We're born that way. We're born desiring the approval and the praise of people. And that is not all bad. It is just bad when it becomes disconnected and, and, and moved out of a proper relationship with our desire for the approval and the blessing, the favor of God. Think of it this way. Let's, let's stay with the analogy of a play, since that's where the word hypocrite uh, comes from. Let, let's go back a couple hundred years to where, when we still had kings and queens who really uh, meant something. You know, in England today, the queen is, you know, really a figurehead. It's not that she's meaningless, but she really the seat of government is not with the royal house. But let's go back maybe to the 1700s where uh, the, the king really did exercise that kind of authority. So let's say that you are in a play. Let's say that you're like the main character in a play in London in the biggest center for performing arts in the city. And so you come out on opening night and you have an auditorium full of people. And of course, that's the audience. They're very important. But also in this great theater in London, you're going to have up to one side the royal box. Nobody sits there unless the king and the queen are there. That's where they sit. And so you come out on opening night and you notice that the royal box is not empty. The king is present. Okay. So out of the audience, there's one person whose opinion is going to matter more than anybody else's to you. And that's the king's. 
you're not going to have any question about who the audience is. You're going to know who the audience is, and you're especially, though, going to know who the king is. So the rest of the audience is not unimportant, it's not irrelevant, but it is definitely secondary. Now, imagine in this setting, as you begin the play, and here you're going, that there is an actor or actress, a fellow actor or actress in the play, who's oblivious to the king, oblivious to the rest of the audience, and keeps seeking the eye and the attention of other actors who are on stage. Or the chorus. You know, you would say, this person has a problem. They don't understand, they, they don't know where they are. They don't know what they're doing. They've forgotten uh, their setting. That is what really Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is saying that when you play to the chorus, when you play to your peer group, the other actors who are on stage, then you're seeking something that is by nature very fickle, very fleeting, and very unfulfilling in the big picture. Like I said, the choruses in Greek plays were often very fickle, and they were often very wrong. In a fallen world, the favor of men, if you're really resting your sense of well-being on it, if you're really resting uh, your sense of, of happiness and fulfillment on the favor of men, it is going to let you down almost every time because the world is fallen and it is full of sinners. The favor of God, on the other hand, is not fickle. It is not fleeting. And it is eternally fulfilling. You know... Um, Kids, as you're in school, you, you'll come to see this. I want to help you see this earlier rather than later. You're going to come to see this at some point. But you know, you, you, if you're at school, if you're junior high, if you're high school, you know that there's real pressure and desire and so forth by all the kids to really have the approval of their fellow kids there. And again, that's not all wrong. It's not right for you to not care about that at all. But it is wrong and it's self-destructive for you to let that be the primary thing in your life, for that to be the thing which uh, controls you. Because even if you succeed in really getting the admiration of your peer group, of really being on the end, you're riding the wave, you know, you're right there on the crest, you are riding it, you're right on the edge. You know, it's, it's kind of like being the leader in, in, in a race car race. Um, uh, or being one of the leaders, it's not like you get to relax now. You're ahead? you got to stay ahead. You know, you you got to race. It's white knuckles. It's like, okay, you're there today. What about tomorrow? What are you going to do tomorrow? You know, there's a, a song the Eagles did uh, called New Kid in Town. And it starts out at the beginning of the song. It says, you know, people you don't even know know about you. And everybody loves you because you're the new kid in town. You're the new thing. And so, you're, you know, everybody loves you, but don't let them down. Don't let them down. But by the end of the song, he's saying, now you're walking away and people are talking behind your back. You know, and the problem is, is there's somebody new in town? 
and it's not you anymore. And it's just talking about the fickleness of the way this works. It is, it is a recipe for angst. It is a recipe for unhappiness. It is a recipe um, for being continually like a hamster on one of those little wheels. You're, you're just always having to go, 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 go to make sure you're not being left behind, that you're staying up on the edge. And sometimes, despite all of your efforts to do so, they will be of no avail. And you will become the person that enables the end group to stay in by pointing out the fact that you're out. You will become that person sooner or later. And so Jesus is not saying don't care what your peers think. Don't have any relationships. He's not saying that. But He's saying that your inner eye, your main focus has to be on the primary audience of life who is God the Father Himself. This is what, this is what Jesus did. He said in John chapter 8, He says, I always do the things that please the Father. That's where His main focus was. Uh, he said, I keep my Father's commandments and this is how I abide in His love. There's a place in John chapter 2 where near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says that you know, this is when throngs were starting to follow him. And, you know, his disciples are getting excited. It's like, Jesus, you the man. And this is, this is happening. This is it. And this is, yeah, wow, this is a movement. And we're here and we're right here and we're on the inner circle and we're part of the disciples. And Jesus, it says that Jesus, so you've got all these people professing faith in him. And it says that Jesus did not commit himself to them. In other words, he's not saying Jesus didn't care about him. Jesus didn't have a relationship with him. But Jesus didn't make his life rest on this crowd. Because it says, here's why. Because Jesus knew men. He knew people. He knew them. He knew what is in the heart of fallen people. And he knew that some of the people there in that throng, praising him and telling him how great he was, we're going to be in three years part of the crowd that is saying, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And so he doesn't commit himself to them. He doesn't turn over his life, his fulfillment, his happiness, his direction, his inner compass, his sense of, of who he is and what he's about to this chorus to define him. And that is what Jesus is calling us to do and to be, to follow him in this. Now, this presents us, though, with a real challenge, doesn't it? Living unto God instead of living unto the chorus is difficult. It's difficult for several reasons. First of all, it requires that we live by faith and not by sight. It's easy to play to the chorus because the chorus is always visible. They're visible. You can see them. And if you can't see them, they're going to text you. And you can Facebook with them. The chorus is right there all the time. You can see them. And so you are very aware of them. We cannot see the Father. We cannot see the Father. It is a matter of believing what Jesus says to us when He keeps saying the Father sees in Secret. The Father is there. The Father sees in secret. 
It is also difficult for us to follow what Jesus is saying because there is a time lag in God's rewarding. When you're playing to the chorus, when you're playing to your peer group and you happen to be hitting the ball the way you're supposed to, things are working right, the rewards are immediate. They're immediate reward. It's very quick. With God, there's a time lag. His rewards have a time lag. And part of the reason why God does that is not because He's slow. The reason why He builds in a time lag is because He wants to make our souls bigger. He wants to develop us. He wants to stretch us, stretch our spiritual muscles. He wants to expand our souls so that we can hold more blessing. Paul in Ephesians talks about being filled up to all, with all the fullness of God. Here's the goal of the Christian life for the church. To be filled up with all the fullness of God. You think you're big enough for that. I'm not big enough for that. So the time lag is part of God working into us part of the blessing. He's making us bigger so that we can hold more. It is all, and because of the time lag, it requires patience and it requires endurance. And this is why the Scripture says again and again, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. The part that's so hard for us is the wait part. If God gave out instant rewards, it wouldn't be so hard, would it? You know, it's like, I went and I prayed to God today and I prayed privately my bedroom and I really prayed. And then there was a knock on the door and I won the lottery. There would not be any problem getting people to do what Jesus is saying. The problem is the weight. That's the problem. That's why it makes it hard for us to feel like he's really there. Like he's really watching. But that's what Jesus keeps saying. Your father who sees in secret. Your father who sees in secret. He keeps saying God is the audience. He's the primary audience. Number one, he's there. He's never not there. Number two, he's paying attention. He hears what you say in secret. He sees what you do in secret. It is not being lost. Three, he is a rewarder. He is a rewarder. He loves to reward his children. But he rewards his children in such a way that does not take them in the wrong direction. You know, he, he rewards his children in such a way that makes them even bigger and even worthier of more rewards. And a lot of the reason why he does that is by building in the weight factor. So we're told again and again in Scripture, wait on the Lord. Wait sounds passive, but it's not passive. It's very active. To wait on the Lord means you're looking to him in faith. You're praying to Him in faith. You're believing what He's saying. So waiting is a very busy thing in the Bible, spiritually speaking. The other reason why it's hard to do this is that the approval of the peer group is cheap and it's easy if you do the right things. It's quickly bestowed and it's quickly lost. God's is not that way. And finally, the reason why this is challenging is because um, if, we have, if we're driven fundamentally 
by our peer group and what they think. If that's the most important things that really grips us in life, that is an impediment to true faith in God. It is corrosive of true faith and of a proper relationship with God. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5. He says to some of the people, people who weren't believing in him, he says, here's the problem. You can't believe. Why can't you believe? He said, how can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. It's not just a matter that they care what one another think. It's the matter that they're, the problem is that they're not seeking fundamentally the glory that comes from the one and only God. They're seeking fundamentally and being controlled by the glory that they can receive from one another. Jesus says, if this is the way your life is being run, it's no wonder why you don't believe. And so, Christian, if, if this is the way your life is playing out, if this is what's driving you, whether you're old or whether you're young, then it's no wonder that your faith is going to be suffering. It's going to be suffering because those two things don't go together. So, what then do we do? What shall we practically do uh, to implement Jesus' words? Now, keep in mind here that particularly in this passage, Jesus is really focused on our heart. He's not, strictly speaking, telling us to do something outwardly, but he's talking about doing something in the whole way that we approach him and the way that we approach life. And change in the heart is a difficult thing. Well, we need to look at what Jesus says here. His word to all three hypocrites that he mentions, and therefore his word to us is to remember who your primary audience is. It's God the Father. That's your primary audience. Live out your faith with that truth governing you. And take steps when appropriate to move to remove the temptation to play to the chorus. And remember that as Jeremiah said, your heart is deceitful above all things. It's very deceitful. So Jesus says when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't seek to have people saying, what a great Christian that person is. What great. They gave this money. They helped the poor and so forth. Don't seek that. Make private prayer the heart of your prayer life. When you are called upon to pray publicly, pray simply and make sure your public prayers are a reflection of your much more abundant private prayers. If you fast, if you're seeking God's face, showing his earnestness in a particular way uh, to really seek uh, his, his answer and blessing to you, uh, then do so joyfully. Do so joyfully because Jesus says, don't dress like you're fasting, dress like you're feasting. The kind of dress he describes there is the kind of stuff you would wear when you're going to a feast. He says, that's the way you dress when you are fasting. Keep it between you and God. That shows that your trust is in God, not others and what you can get from others. Now, I want to add to this the things that Jesus says by pointing out something that Jesus doesn't actually say here. But Jesus is really uh, talking about here. He doesn't say it, but he's talking about it the whole time. And I, and I really, please listen to this. Please listen to this. In this whole passage, Jesus, without ever expressly saying so, is addressing our deepest needs and our deepest yearnings. 
Because one of our deepest needs and deepest yearnings as people made in the image of God is our need and our yearning for approval, for praise, and for reward for doing good. Aren't we born that way? Aren't we born yearning for approval, yearning for praise, yearning for reward for doing good? Right? We're born that way. That's part of what it means to be human. Now, much of our inner restlessness that we as Christians even experience, much of our inner restlessness and our inner unhappiness comes from what you might call father hunger. That is, a deep yearning for approval, praise, and reward that only God the Father can give. Only the Heavenly Father can give. But which people are constantly trying to fill elsewhere. People are constantly trying to fill that hole elsewhere. right? By getting somebody else's approval and praise and reward. But no one else can fulfill it. It's often been said that people are born with a God-shaped hole. Well, if we want to be more correct on that, we need to say that people are born with a father-shaped hole in them. And only the father can uh, fill it. And so, um, let me mention, parents, this is one reason why Christian parents, why it's so important that even though sinners though you are, sinners though you are, and though you're going to fall short, particularly fathers, you need to tell the truth about God the Father and how you relate to your children. And so it really needs to come across that you love to give praise to your children, you, you, you're looking for opportunities to approve them, and you're looking for opportunities to reward them. Now, God also tells us that He always disciplines His children. That always has to be there too. But the fundamental thing that your life has to say to your kids is what God the Father said to His Son. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that really needs to come through. And a a lot of the things that we struggle with, maybe you didn't come up in a home like that. Most of us didn't. Most of us didn't. There's a few Christians I know who did, who came up in a home, though their parents were sinners, the father and the mother really did a good job of fundamentally telling the truth in how they live about the father and also telling the truth about the church, who is our mother. And those are really blessed. Those are people who do not turn out to be restless. They're not restless. They're not skittish. They're not uh, jumpy and all that kind of stuff because they, they've had the right kind of love. But the fact, I don't want you to feel bad if you didn't come up that way. If you didn't come up that way, then you're in the 99%. Okay? Most of us didn't come up that way. God's calling us to that. But what we have to get, though, is that in many of us, there's this deep, deep ache and yearning for this kind of approval, for this kind of praise, and for this kind of reward. And we need to get through our head that there's only one can fill that hole. You know, so maybe your dad didn't do it for you. You know, my dad wasn't even a Christian. It's like, did he fill my tank? No. What was he going to fill it with? He didn't have anything. His tank was dead empty. He didn't get anything from his dad. You know? And I love my dad. But the truth was, he didn't have that 
to, to give me. So well, what do I do? Am I going to suck my thumb for the rest of my days and go, well, I didn't, I'm a victim. My dad, you know, it's like, look, God's in, he's sovereign over it. It just means he's called me to walk with my father, my heavenly father, who's really the only one who can fill that anyway, in such a way that he's going to fill that. God the Father can fill that hole. But there is a process involved. And we need to walk according to Jesus in that process. So, do this. Do this. Number one, pray to the Father. Pray to the Father for His help. And pray to the Father for His healing. If you've got a deep hole in you that's Father hunger, say it. Tell God. Tell the Father, ask Him to fill that. Ask for His help and for His healing. Number two, as you go through day-to-day life, remember what is true. God the Father is the primary audience. He is there. He's always there. He's always paying attention. He pays attention in secret. He pays attention to every detail. And He is a rewarder. He's looking for opportunity to give to you and to reward to you. But he will call you to wait. He will call you to remember the truth, to live in accordance with it, and then wait for his blessing. So remember what is objectively true, not how you feel. Remember what's true. And third, act in accordance with the truth even when you don't feel the truth inside. Say, I don't feel the truth here. I don't feel these things. That's okay. It doesn't change what is true. Act in accordance with the truth. Over time, God will change the way you feel. Will change the way you feel. You remember what's true, and you act accordance with truth. Now, if you have a child, your father, your mother, you have a little child, and you you teach them things, and you see them out in the playground one day, and they don't know you're watching, and you see them interacting with other kids. Now, if you see them just being totally controlled by these other kids and doing whatever, uh, you know, whatever the the moment calls for and not remembering anything that you've taught them, you're going to be disappointed, you're going to be saddened. But if you see your child, even though they can't see you there, remembering, in other words, even though you're not right there where they can see you, it's your approval, it's your blessing that they're fundamentally seeking, and they stand for what's good and what's right, not like a little self-righteous prig, but in a good way. You know, they, they stand for what's right, they don't just go along with the crowd. You know, that's going to make you proud, okay? And God is looking for the same thing from us. Over time, God will change the way you feel. This is one of his rewards. It's a private reward, but it's one of his great rewards. And he's also going to reward you openly. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.